I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Selectionary, the podcast that cobbles the canon of films from one of the world's greatest animation directors, Henry Selleck. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And my name is Jake. <laughs> so join us in our quest of the glorious world of Henry Selleck. So musical already, Jake. Thank you for treating us to that. <laughs> That's all right. I'm very happy to. Was, um, yeah. What a, what a big tune that one is. I, I, we talked about how simple a lot of The Nightmare Before Christmas is. Can't get much more simple than a song that's just saying what your name is. <laughs> I mean, in a way, that's just what Cats is as well, isn't it? Absolutely. We'll have to do Cats someday and then you can sing us all those songs too. <laughs> but yes, we're back on our journey through the filmography of Henry Selleck after The Nightmare Before Christmas. We should say Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas on our previous episode. And now moving from one great visionary of one kind of filmmaking to a visionary of children's storytelling, Roald Dahl this week, before we dive into the actual film of James the Giant Peach. So particularly in the UK, Roald Dahl is a staple of kids' early reading, story time, etc. Steph, Jake, did you have much of a Roald Dahl relationship growing up? Yeah, uh, I certainly did. I have a very strong memory of um, listening to the audiobook of Fantastic Mr. Fox a lot on cassette, and I would listen to it to go to sleep. But then in a dramatic turn of events, um, the bookshelf that was drilled into the wall above my bed, there was one day where the tape was playing as I was going to sleep and the screws came out of the bookshelf and an entire bookshelf collapsed on the sleeping child Jake as he was happily listening to Fantastic Mr Fox so maybe I've got some unprocessed trauma about Roald Dahl that I need to <laughs> but yeah all of these books and board games and everything just like and the, sh- the bookshelf itself collapsed on top of me whilst I was asleep listening to it um, so that um <laughs> Also, yeah, um, like watched the original Willy Wonka film a lot. Um, read a lot of the books, all the the shorter, the shorter end of them. Um, so I like the witches a lot. Etio Trot. Um, yeah, read a lot of Dahl. Watched a lot of Dahl. Big Dahl head. You a Dahl head, Steph? 
I definitely was, yeah. I remember watching, yeah, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and um, Matilda, like, so much as a kid on video. Um, and then, yeah, just read some of the books. And I had a lot of tapes as well, Jake. I had the twits on tape. Mm. Oh, the twits, lovely. Um, I had George's Marvelous Medicine. Yeah. Um, yeah, quite a few others, I think. Um, but for me, I think, like, uh, Roald Dahl and Quentin Blake just go hand in hand. Um, I listened to them quite a lot with my grandparents and like who were really into kind of art and drawing and really into Quentin Blake's illustrations. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's something that I always associate with him. Um, Those kind of lovely, like spindly characters and illustrations. So it's fun that we're talking about films, like visual representations of Roald Dahl that aren't Quentin Blake pictures. Like Quentin Blake is because he's um, he's based in the southeast of England, which is where I'm from he's like a go-to illustrator for a lot of cultural events in the area so it's kind of followed me around so even when it's like Hastings illustration festival or something and it's like artwork by Quentin Blake and then you you, you see it and you think is Roald Dahl somehow connected to this festival <laughs> and I realized the other thing that follows me around with Roald Dahl is that um we all know the Mark Wahlberg insane work routine where Mark Wahlberg gets up at 2am to pray for three hours and then has breakfast, then the gym. But Roald Dahl's work routine is one that I cling on to and think, that's what I want one day. So I'll, I'll read this to you and I'm sure you two will become jealous of it. Um, Roald Dahl had a very strict daily routine. He would eat breakfast in bed and open his post. At 10.30am, he would walk through the garden to his writing hut and work until 12 when he would go back to the house for lunch. <laughs> Typically a gin and tonic followed by Norwegian prawns with mayo and lettuce. At the end of every meal, Roald and his family had a chocolate bar chosen from a red plastic box. After a snooze, he would take a flask of tea back to the writing hut and work from four until six. He would then be back at the house at exactly six, ready for dinner. So the man worked from 10.30 until 12, had a four-hour lunch, and then worked for two more hours. <laughs> Sounds like a great work-life balance, to be honest. I'm very jealous. <laughs> I'm sure that's the only... That's the sort of work routine that you can only have if you've had several decades of success <laughs> and many beloved children's books on shelves already. Um, but I remember there was a... I think it was a Blue Peter interview with him from just before he died when that was on telly when i was little and they kept coming back to that and it was yeah the, the writing shed at the bottom of the garden um is, is a, an image that's been in my head since a since a little kid um oh wow so uh, again we're off to a great start with the selectionary episode where we've spoken for several minutes <laughs> not about henry Selick, <laughs> <laughs> but that's rolled out of course um a, a very pivotal figure in many particularly english language reading kids lives um so, but this film is part of a wave of films that were adapting the, the work of Roald Dahl in the 90s. So we should really crack on with James and the Giant Peach. A young boy named James gains possession of some magic crocodile tongues after the daring rescue of a spider from his cruel aunts. When he accidentally spills them in the garden, out sprouts an enormous peach. Inside, he finds a group of human-sized bugs who help him escape his bleak home life and confront his sorrowful past in the midst of a magical odyssey. 
So Michael, we left Henry Selleck uh, with The Nightmare Before Christmas uh, and the context on that was heavy on a debate around whose film it actually was. Of course, there was a different person's name above the title. You had people competing over the screenplay. Uh, you had the composer saying it's his story. You had other people saying it's theirs. What's going on with James and the Giant Peach? Well, it's actually the success of The Nightmare Before Christmas where Henry Selleck says his, his, his entire career is changed and he's having meetings with Steven Spielberg's company and he's offered the opportunity to direct the feature film, the live-action feature film of Casper the Friendly Ghost that comes out in eventually in 1995. He says he ends up turning down that offer because um, when he turned in a bunch of notes based on the script he'd been sent, they weren't interested in his notes. They said, this film's already been greenlit. We don't want your notes. They said, okay, this sounds a bit too much like a hired hand situation here. But luckily, there was already this project bubbling away, which was James the Giant Peach. Um, even in interviews around the release of The Nightmare Before Christmas, he's speaking about this as his next project, talking about the idea of mixing live action, having a very flat, stagey live action world, and then going into this magical um, world of animation inside the peach with all of the, the insects as they come to life. Here's a quote that I think is quite an interesting key almost to the entire Henry Selleck filmography. He says, I've always loved moving from dimension to dimension. When we go into the animated world, things will just fall away into a more rich dimensional world, more alive than the live world. Now, as we mentioned up top, this is adapted from a Roald Dahl book. And during his lifetime, Dahl didn't really have great experiences with filmmakers adapting his work for the big screen. There's the 1970s Gene Wilder version of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which he famously didn't like very much. And then he clashed with Nick Rogue in the feature film of The Witches that came out just um, in 1990, just before his death. Um, there are lots of changes. That's a really interesting film to read about, where Nick Rogue shot two endings and presented them to Roald Dahl. And he's, he, Roald Dahl said which ending he liked, and then Nick Rogue went with the other one. <laughs> <laughs> so he really did not like that. And so he, did, he was very protective of his uh, the, the feature film rights for his books. And it was only after Roald Dahl died and then the the estate went to his widow and his family that um, there was this renewal in interest in selling the rights but to the right filmmakers and James the Giant Peach of all of his books was the one that filmmakers seemed most keen to adapt Spielberg really wanted it Danny DeVito really wanted it but they lost out to Disney and interestingly of course Steven Spielberg eventually made his Dahl movie like 20 years later with the BFG Danny DeVito very quickly made Matilda which came out not long around the same time as James the Giant Peach um, but according to an Entertainment Weekly report at the time it was Lucy Dahl who's the youngest daughter of Dahl's family um, that swung the decision in Disney's favour uh, because she was a huge fan of The Nightmare Before Christmas and Selleck talks about how the Dahl family visited the set of Nightmare uh, towards the end of production and they were impressed with what they were doing so they saw that he was the guy to make the film um, Tim Burton is listed as a producer on this again under Skellington Productions, but his role is even smaller than it was in The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, it's said that he just basically set up the deal to acquire the film and then went off. I think he was making, he was making Mars Tax at this time. Um, so that left Henry Selleck in the middle of Disney as they were going through this massive transition phase in the mid-90s. They were making The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is sort of this, I suppose some would say the downward slide of the Disney renaissance after 
Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King. But of course, what comes out around this time is Toy Story, which changes everything um, and makes a, marks a shift towards Pixar being the future of animation. Um, so this stop motion animated feature sticks out more than ever. Um, but it's the president of Walt Disney Pictures, Dave Vogel, who is on Selleck's side. And there's an amazing quote he gives in this Entertainment Weekly uh, article from the time. He said that James was the reward to Henry for having successfully directed Nightmare while so much of the credit went to Tim. Um, nice position to be in, really, to be given like a <laughs> what, a, a $30 million production just as a, <laughs> as a treat. <laughs> so no Burton this time. There's no Danny Elfman either. Um, and so this many-headed many monster that we talked about in the previous episode, that's gone. Um, but there was almost a very strong um, creative voice in the mix that didn't pan out. Um, there's an unmade version of this film with a script written by Dennis Potter, who was a great TV dramatist who worked a lot for the BBC in the 70s and 80s, made amazing visionary dramas like The Singing Detective, Pennies from Heaven. He wrote a screenplay that was rejected by the Dahl family because it had moved a bit too far away from the books. So instead, they had to stop production while they had rewrites from sort of Hollywood regulars and Disney familiars. So credited on the screenplays, Jonathan Roberts, who just co-written The Lion King, and Carrie Kirkpatrick, who um, worked on The Rescuers Down Under and went on to many things afterwards as well. Um, and another difference here, maybe, uh, compared to Nightmare, is just an incredible stacked cast of actors from both sides of the Atlantic. You have Miriam Margulies and Joanna Lumley playing the ants. You have Pete Postle, Thwaites as the narrator, magician figure. And then in The Peach, you have the voices of Richard Dreyfus, Susan Sarandon, Jane Leaves, one of those 90s castings here. Jane Leaves, who at that time was on Frasier as Daphne Moon, uh, is, is in here as well, as well as um, my favourite, David Thewlis. Um, it was a tough production, of course. It's a labour-intensive process, and they're mixing live-action, stop-motion. There was a there was a sort of a phase where they were going to try and make it so that the child actor of James was going to be a human actor all the way through. Um, but in the end, they had to change it so he was going to be stop-motion animated, kind of puppet creature character uh, when he went into the peach. Um, but there's a great Henry Selleck quote about the making of the film. He says, It's been a tough relationship, but rewarding. We had some real rough spots. We shut down while doing rewrites. We laid off people. But I've never heard of great movies coming from Party Atmosphere Productions. Oh, they're one of my favourite studios. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so couple that with the fact that Toy Story changes the landscape um, while this film is in production. So after James was made, Selleck was told by the head of production at Disney that stop motion just wasn't viable anymore. So imagine basically your two features into your career <laughs> <laughs> and you're told, sorry, that's it now. Not viable. It, 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 there's this great tradition of stop motion animation that takes several decades to come to fruition with a great feature like The Nightmare Before Christmas. And they said, nope, sorry, it's over and done with now. The film opens in the US April 1996 and the UK over the summer same year and yeah didn't really make a great deal of money barely made its budget back on the theatrical release um, but it did get a great critical response great response from the industry Randy Newman's score gets a, an Oscar nomination and at the Annecy Festival which we've talked about many times on this podcast it's that great international celebration of the art of animation um, it wins the best feature prize and um, that follows um, that win follows two on the trot wins for Studio Ghibli films for best feature 
at Annecy. And this is quiz time. So in 1996, James the Giant Peach is named Best Feature at Annecy. And this was back when Annecy wasn't an annual festival. It was every two years. So in 1992 and 1994, Ghibli films won Best Feature. Uh, oh, God. Uh, yeah, and then you're in the funny world of which ones get submitted in relation to the Japanese release dates. Don't, don't overthink it. Don't overthink um, it. Porco Rosso. And? Okay, uh, Porco Rosso and Only Yesterday. No. Uh, so so what comes after Porco Rosso, 1994? Pompoco. Yeah. Oh well, that's nice that those two won. Well, on the lads. <laughs> <laughs> and then James Don't Peach is in the in in the same bracket as those, so it's definitely very well regarded. But how well regarded is it amongst us? Of course. <laughs> uh, let's move on to our review section. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we've done The Nightmare Before Christmas, which we, we t- tried to untangle all those creative voices. And now fewer of those creative voices are involved in this one. This is a Henry Selleck joint. Following on from The Night Before Christmas, uh, Jake, what is Selleck-y? here what's striking you um i think what we see here and what carries on from nightmare before christmas is this adoration for things that might be seemingly kind of grotesque uh, or at least in our regular society are uh, put to the side of the grotesque and really treating them with a lot of respect uh and really a lot of care as well like all, all of these bugs and 
creatures are so beautifully designed uh, and we might normally maybe accidentally squish them under a boot and we see that in Nightmare Before Christmas and I think that's the a, a bit of a Guillermo del Toro thing as well and that, that it is the kind of more maligned characters that are treated with more love um, and I think we're kind of establishing this look for characters faces like people are quite head heavy they're beady eyed um, and a lot quite spindly as well a lot of the characters look like they could snap at the neck or limb at any moment um, and I think we'll we'll carry on and see that again in Coraline and I think something that we'll probably talk about as we get further down the line towards the Leica films as well and maybe the other Tim Burton films too is the the visual influence that Nightmare Before Christmas had because I didn't mention it in the episode before but you look at the look of Sally and then the look in Corpse Bride mm-hmm. um, and then we've got the approach to Dahl here uh, the kind of heightened theatrical version of Dahl here and then the Timber and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and I don't think the Wes Anderson Fantastic Mr Fox looks like it does without this film looking like it does so it's almost like as well as saying a visual language for um, Henry Selleck He's saying a visual language for a lot of what Dahl would be represented at as well. Mm-hmm. And stop motion in general as well. I mean, we're going to see this where a whole studio basically um, forms based off of uh, these films that Henry Selleck made in the 90s and then Coraline in the 2000s. What, what, I, what really strikes me here and is what I think the real quality of this film beyond maybe anything else is the high standard of the animation and the way we were talking in our previous episode about Henry Selleck being having that background in experimental film and character animation he is really challenging himself and his team every time to do this at a higher standard and a higher quality the dance sequences Mm. in this of the characters how they move how they exist is just astounding well and and how the camera moves with them as well yeah it, it's ab- absolutely compared to something like Wallace and Gromit, where the the sort of Nick Park and Ardman approach to the world is puns and jokes and cramming things into the world. This doesn't really have as much of that, maybe, as the Nightmare Before Christmas did in terms of the visual humour, but it is all about the visual expression, and then that that then is we have this other side of the coin with the flip into the real world well it starts in the real world and flips into the animated world and you can really see what he was trying to do with this stagey fake looking um real world at the beginning where that is more heightened maybe or heightened in a different way to the world of the peach inside the peach but you talked about dal and how this sets the tone for dal jake um where does this land in the annals of Dahl films for you, Steph, as a Dahl head? <laughs> Dahl head. I haven't watched some of the other Dahl films for quite a while. Um, and I don't really remember watching this one as a kid. I think I, I mostly remember The Peach. Like when he smells the peach mm-hmm. and you can like almost smell like the peach with him. And then when he like 
when a little section of the peach kind of opens and he can crawl in through the tunnel. I seem to remember that pretty well. Um, but I don't really remember anything about the stop motion section. And I don't really know why. Maybe I turned it off as like a six year old and just stopped watching it because I do. Yeah. Like just fully don't remember that. And it's not really one that I read that much either. I don't think. And it's, it's not one of the strongest doll stories in my mind. Um, and more of a, yeah, more remember watching like Matilda and Child in the Chocolate Factory. And I mean, more recently, Fantastic Mr. Fox. But um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite an odd, an odd dark little story mm. that, I mean, yeah, while it's not one that I remember that well, it's like, it seems like a perfect fit for Selick to adapt. And I, it's, yeah, I think what you were saying about the kind of character designs and the way they move, it's like, whereas in Nightmare Before Christmas, everybody is kind of like a humanoid, like, character. So you know they have, you know, at least two legs and a couple of arms or whatever. This is like, how do you make a worm in sunglasses move? <laughs> move like a worm and, like, make it funny and make it visually work? Or, like, how do you make use of the centipedes little pincers oh, as so like good. a kind of plot device i, I think it's the really... centipedes the animation on the centipede is maybe my favorite and like the effort that must have gone in to just having to deal with all of those legs and, it, <laughs> and the way it scuttles is so entertaining and it's just that kind of liquid spine and how they can be so creative with how the characters move is so good mm. Mm. i think yeah it's definitely something that i noticed more than the story which is what is going on in the story? I have no idea. Yeah, it's like it. it's very kind of spirited away in that sense of it's just like a kid telling you a dream that they once had. Mm. Like, and then I lassoed some seagulls and we flew away on the peach, which has a staircase on it now. And then we went to a pirate ship. Like, it's just so mad. But um, yeah, the actual like character animation and those kind of those the like very beady eyes. It's amazing how much expression can be got mm. out of those just by. I think making them smaller and bigger sometimes and kind of use of eyebrows is it's really simple and obviously there's less characters to work with than that kind of huge cast of Nightmare Before Christmas but yeah it definitely feels like they've like drilled down into what makes each of the bugs their own character and and made them very distinctive yeah Jake, Jake, you said you loved the story because this is also leading on from something we said in the previous episode where Selick thinks that if you're going to be so crazy and out there and experimental with your animation, your characters, you should have as straightforward a story as possible. And while it is maybe a bit confounding how it all ties together, this is quite an episodic one, two, three, four kind of story. Um, you, you're, you're a fan? Absolutely. I think this one's brilliant. Um, and I think the Spirited Away connection goes a bit further than that. I think um, it is quite dreamlike and it's got that episodic feeling as you said but this is this is a film about finding your name as well and and this is what james's song at the start uh my name is james and it's very sad um but by the end of the film we kind of have the um oh what's it reprise of that and it's this ownership of that and he's got goes through this journey of self-exploration to ultimate to kind of find who he is and it's 
tied around his name very spirited away um but yeah i i prefer this to nightmare before christmas i think um i i think like there's just a it's got emotion to it that nightmare before christmas doesn't Mm. i think nightmare before christmas is so invested in showing you all the creativity and that's i absolutely get that that's what the film is for um and i think this strips away the excess of that um and nails down its focus which is we've got these characters and we want to show what we can do with them i think it's not a coincidence that nightmare before christmas happens mostly in the dark and this film happens mostly in the light like there is so much sunlight in this film it really wants to show you everything that it's doing and not hide anything away um and i think this film also shows how good selick is as a kind of tactile evocative filmmaker because these settings are silly and crazy um but there is so much emphasis on touch and sound that really brings them to life i mentioned that i was watching it to my partner and she said that she barely remembers anything from it hasn't watched it since she was probably six and even from that she was like oh but do you remember the squelch (laughs) yeah of course i do remember the squelch and like the sequences where they're churning out the peach uh to eat it and all of the (laughs) and putting it through the machines and again i mentioned this on the nightmare before christmas one about how how well he builds his world through the machines and tools that exist in it like that is something i really loved about this and that is something that wallace and gromit does in a quite silly way in that they have their rube goldberg machines Mm -hmm. and it's all about kind of comical invention and selick has something of that to him where he wants to kind of build these heightened objects um but those objects they are they show his curiosity about the world that he's built like he is so interested in the workings of his worlds and not just the aesthetic mm-hmm. which is maybe something like oh, where's anderson doing fantastic mr fox is like right this is my canvas to just make the most aesthetically pleasing thing i can because it's stop motion and i have total control whereas selick is like i will build this world and not only will i build it i will show you how the kind of the the workings of it come together um yeah and that shows that he's swimming in the same waters as someone like Miyazaki, who would only do something like House Within Castle if he would like to figure out how a castle could move. Mm. Um, or even Guillermo del Toro as well. He's, he's very much in the same realm as these filmmakers who care about the inner workings of the worlds they create. But also, I, I'm sure that goes hand in hand for him about stop motion. What's the point of doing stop motion if you're not going to be intricately designing these worlds? It's funny you talk about the colours and the the light in this because there's a quote somewhere in one of the interviews i read where one of the big notes one of the only notes he had from tim burton on the nightmare before christmas was that halloween town was too bright and too colorful (laughs) (laughs) and in this one gosh the world of the peach is so colorful yeah i should also say as well that um this is a podcast of course it's not video but both steph and i our, our eyebrow was basically raised to the point where it went around the back of our skulls when you said that you prefer this to nightmare before christmas but you're right there's there's an emotional rawness and intensity um to dull storytelling that is present here that it goes hand in hand with the grotesqueness of of his um 
of, of his stories you will you do not have the exploration here of loneliness and um almost childhood trauma that this has and it really sits with james within that trauma uh, goes ha- go is all is part and parcel of the fact that he is so gosh you, you look back at the 90s and you think that the, you know, we knew at the time that Roald Dahl wasn't a very nice guy uh, but it's so he does not want children to ever eat food <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> this is like, he hates fatness of, of any kind doesn't he <laughs> yeah he really does but and the and the kind of the blackly <clears throat> comedic way that he delivers traumatic events is something that so I really love these series of unfortunate event books as mm. well and I don't know what that says about but I'm drawn to Dahl because of the horror um, <laughs> but like the idea that there's a there's a lovely kid and he's having a great time with his parents and then they get eaten by an alligator um, but it's presented in a way that doesn't absolutely terrify children and I think that's that's actually quite a good thing that mm. these traumatic events can be made more palatable and you, that's a running thing throughout his stories and yeah I, I really yeah very into this one um and i really like and we'll see how this goes in monkey bone that um the mixed media of it that isn't made that much of a big deal of and maybe this is just because of the bad experiences of recent stuff like space jam 2 or chippendale rescue rangers or even the original space jam as well like the idea of mixing live action animation you have to point your audience to the fact that you're doing that you've got to tell them that you're being clever and how experimental you're being and Selick is not interested in that at all he's got the live action world and you can be expressive and creative in that world and I have to say it looks beautiful like it looks like a Terence Davis film it's amazing that live action world then it goes into the stop motion world and it's equally impressive but at no point is it kind of telling you that it's flipped between these worlds to tell you how clever it is it's a beautiful cut, isn't it? When mm. he's um, he's crawling through that space into the peach and there's just this almost immediate moment where he goes from being a live boy to being the animated boy. I also love the design of New York at the end. It reminded me mm. very strongly of various Gotham cities from Tim Burton <laughs> to the animated series. That sort of these art deco skyscrapers that seem to be you know, leaning in, into each other to block out the sky. Really wonderful but also timeless as well. I love how we're creating this network of films and filmmakers. You mentioned the Lemony Snicket film. I mean, well, you're, you're, you're mentioning mm. Lemony Snicket for more than just the film, but Brad Silberling directed that film, the um, Jim Carrey version, and he was the guy that ended up making Casper. So all these, all these, you know, and, and all these guys make a Dahl movie, don't they? Spielberg makes BFG, Wes Anderson makes Phantom Mystic Fox, Tim Burton makes Child in the Chocolate Factory. They're, they're, they're all swimming in the same and suit, the, aren't they? The Netflix unfortunate events is so indebted to this as well. Like the the look of that is so close, more so than the feature film, to this template that's set out in these early adaptations, even though it's not dull. It's it's really fascinating. So the elephant in the room for me that just does not work for me as well as something like The Night Before Christmas is I just don't get along with Lanny Newman's score and songs. Maybe apart from My Name is James, which I smile whenever I say that because I, when I say that, I hear Channing Tatum in Jump Street saying My Name is Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it just, it, it, it suits the film fine, but 
we we lose something maybe in the in the writing and then the fact that it's a um a a, a cast sung um soundtrack compared to Danny Elfman who we said has such an expressive voice and such an eccentric songwriting personality as well this feels a bit more just what you would expect maybe from a kids movie of the 90s because mm. Randy Newman by this point had written Toy Story and was about to write several more animated films that we all grew up watching yeah <laughs> I th- sorry I, was, yes, I thought it was yeah. Um, yeah there's the, the song when he gets into the peach and all the characters are I can't remember what what they're trying to do but the, the one where they're introducing themselves yeah they're introducing That's themselves and that is so Randy Newman I love it to the point where like yeah even if I hadn't been like looking at the opening credits I would have been like oh it's Randy Newman um but yeah the, I don't think the songs are as strong um I appreciate that it's that there are still songs I think it's really fun that we're doing this I feel like this is our first kind of musical films miniseries. I don't think we've done any other films that like have songs included in this way that I can think of. Um, So no, it is, it is really fun because it's, it's, I think like the inclusion of songs lends itself so well to the film. Um, But I don't think they're like as, as strong in there, but they are, it is definitely like, more of a, a kids film vibe um than nightmare before christmas yeah i i think so um and i think like this is this is a film that you're watching from like five upwards and nightmare before christmas you're not kind of it's no coincidence that people are m- mostly getting into that when they're teenagers as well and that's when they're mostly getting attached to it um, but I think there's there's some really cool stuff in this. I I, I I think it's great. I really like that there's not a plan other than to go to New York as if that like will solve all problems. And I think that's like similar to Nightmare Before Christmas and the Oogie Boogie plot where it's, it's, it's like it's vague. Um, it's not annoying or anything. But I think Nightmare Before Christmas for me as a story gets less interesting when it's like the plan about Christmas and the romance and all of that and once it starts actually kind of having to force all this creativity into a a plot it's not as cool um whereas this kind of maintains that slightness throughout Mm -hmm. um and then yeah you do get the kind of villains showing up at the end for a few minutes for a a, a finale and I, i can give or take that i'm not too bothered um but I, I, I'm happy to just bob along with it. I think it's got such a lovely rhythm. Um, mm. Something that did annoy me, and maybe this is me, of airing my grievances again <laughs> for Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers and Space Jam 2, but um, that Jack Skellington appears, or a character <laughs> that looks a lot like him, which I suppose at the time people have been like, wow, crazy. But now, considering all of our media that we consume from Disney and beyond is all about recognising characters that we're familiar with, um, that, that annoyed it, me. It's just a skeleton. I think yeah. it's just the way that, yeah, skeletons are designed. But I like definitely picked up like, oh, it looks like Jack Skellington. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I think maybe it's just the if, design. If, if... If you're annoyed by filmmakers having repetitive sort of aesthetics and designs, oh come you know, on, come on! You, <laughs> you know, that, that is you to the very intentional. Of 
Tim Burton. Yes, it is very. Well, no, it's intentional as well because um, I believe that the same facility and studios and a lot of the same crew were working on this. So uh, Tom Saint Amont, like the amazing animator, um, puppet animator, is on this again. Who we didn't mention on Nightmare Before Christmas, but he's an absolute virtuoso um, in visual effects. He w- is behind so many iconic shots. I'm surprised in Nightmare Before Christmas we didn't talk about the potential ET homage when um, he's he's flying the, the sleigh and he goes cr- cuts across the moon. Because um, Tom Saint-Amont animated the moonshot in E.T. as well. And he's working on this. And I really do think, m- more than maybe anything, this is just a virtuosic display of what stop motion can do. And all so much so many forms of animation are within this film as well. There's the nightmare dream sequence, which oh, seems to yeah. be... Henry Selleck going all the way back to Lotte Reiniger, who we mentioned uh, was a very early formative influence for him. She worked with cut-out paper characters in the 1920s, 1930s, and he's using that in this film. And I love it when filmmakers almost just cram so many of their influences and what they love about their craft and their art into the films with the hope of people being turned on by that stuff and then going and expanding their worlds. And that's something that you know Guillermo del Toro does that, and I think Leica do that very well as well. When we come to them, so it, it this it's so it's such a shame in a way to almost deliver this film dead on arrival, where the industry had already passed it by and they're being told this isn't viable anymore because it is relatively cheap. It's labor intensive. It takes a long time, but thirty million, forty million dollars versus two hundred million dollars for something, uh, you know, for some of those CG animated films down the line. This was comparatively cheap. But to be, it's a shame then to deliver such a bravura performance as a animator on mass, everyone who's working on this, and then be told, "Sorry, this isn't viable anymore." But I'm so glad we have it. Yeah, we'll have to make a collage of the moons because there's a beautiful moonshot in this. We'll have a beautiful moonshot in Coraline. We have one in Nightmare. <laughs> God, this is like Kyle Chandler drawing on the chalkboard. <laughs> That's Henry Selick coming into the script. We moon. choose to go to the moon. <laughs> the other things, yeah. So, tag yourself. <laughs> oh. who, who are you in this film? Um, can, can, can I steal? Uh, I think we've already mentioned him. Can I be the worm? Uh, and sunglasses. Cause just mainly because if I could have anyone's voice, I think it would be David Thewlis. <laughs> he is a voice that just warms me every time I hear him. Even when he's playing... Um, the character in Mike Lee's Naked, who is one of the most horrible characters ever, he just has this beautiful voice. He's from Lancashire, he's from Blackpool, which is just down the road from where I grew up. Uh, so expressive. And uh, that made me smile seeing him. <laughs> who are you two in this film? Steph? I am... Uh, Mrs. Ladybird's enormous bag uh, which contains soda bread a mirror many other things endless bag i love it um or i'm the cricket's perfectly shaped trousers which i think are an amazing feat of costume that's nice um i would like to be pete postlethwaite (laughs) i think that's such a lovely character um and i think that ultimately Pete Postlethwaite, by the end of the film, he is telling us that the the magic trick was cinema the whole time. That's what the the crocodiles. What are they? They're crocodile 
tongues? Tongues. Oh, I got confused. So it's the rhino that kills the parents, but the crocodile yeah. tongues. That, yeah. Um, and that idea of them bringing things to life. And by the end of the film, when, when they kind of get blowed in front of her eyes, you think, oh, that's what's happened this whole time. We've had the, the, <laughs> the magic of cinema has been created in front of our eyes. And Pete Postlethwaite did that for us. And yeah, I, I love his character. He's so sweet. And I think um, talking about the kind of simplicity of Selick as well, like so much of the the magic of Pete Postlethwaite's character is just camera tricks and editing. Uh, mm. He'll appear in the place that he wasn't in the shot before. And all, all he's done is stop recording, stand on the other side of a fence and carry on recording again. Um, and it's like what cinema is doing for a hundred years at this point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, simple magic of it. And he's the heart of it. Oh, it's such a tribute to the some great character actors of the 1990s as well. Um, that is such a treat for this. Maybe watching this as an adult now, maybe that is maybe what feels like it dates it at times, is the fact that you have um, you know, Joanna Lumley pretty much walking straight off the set of Absolutely Fabulous <laughs> to be in this film. And then similarly, you know, Pete Postlethwaite. This would have been right after Romeo and Juliet, I suppose. Like, this is peak Peak, peak pos. Peak Postlethwaite. <laughs> <laughs> so that is our take on James and the Giant Peach. Up next, we're unveiling a slightly wonky uh, ranking name for this miniseries. So we've just come up with this on air essentially in between the cracks of this recording for this mini series of course we, in the past we had the hoss order we had jacob's ladder the leaderboard and this time we're going for top motion <laughs> <laughs> ranking these stop motion animated films as we go so far we have two films to to put on the board steph i'll come to you first because jake's already spoiled his um i think nightmare before christmas takes some beating anyway and i don't think it's going to be beaten by james and the giant peach for me unfortunately um amazing character design i think it kind of uh sacrifices it's like aesthetics for that so nightmare before christmas is kind of the whole package for me still yeah but i would like to live in the peach pit house that james lives mm. in at the end mm. i'll give it extra points for that so, Jake, are you lobbying on behalf of Big Peach? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm clawing it back from Call Me By Your Name. This is the definitive peach in cinema. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm afraid I agree with Steph, just because Nightmare Before Christmas. Maybe James the Giant Peach is a better display of Henry Selick's talents, you could say. But the Nightmare Before Christmas, all of those parts coming together, the creative voices created something very special and enduring for me i predict that maybe if i like go and rewatch everything loads of times that could change i think like nightmare before christmas is quite kind of almost overwhelming the first time that you've watched it if you don't have any relationship to it before um and james and giant peach is perhaps more is easier to comprehend um and take in but we'll see but yeah i'm a peach we will boy. see we'll see how they rank against Henry Selick's next film, next episode, we're tackling Monkey Bone, which is a, another step 
in that if he has his feet in live action versus animation this is another step along that trajectory that's monkey bone next time until then though if you want to hear even more from us uh you can do so over on our patreon patreon.com slash ghibliotech over there we're doing our continuing series the library cafe where we talk about what we're doing that doesn't involve studio ghibli um so michael and i recently recorded a bit of a summer book club uh looking at some graphic novels and some books we've been reading um and that was a lot of fun and we'll be doing some stuff that splinters off from this series as well um where it might not be Leica or Selic, but there's a connection so we want to be exploring those films too so we'll be doing that on our library cafe um that is my my way of finally getting michael to watch bumblebee uh and i'm, <laughs> I'm very excited about that um and so yeah check us out over on there and if you um if you want to get involved in our discord that's how you can do that too discord has been brilliant it's a great way to connect with us and other listeners of the show and just chat about anime and records and <laughs> games and it's it's the uh the nerdiest corner of the internet really but of course as well you can get in touch with us on social media we are at ghibliotech on twitter ghibliotech.pod on instagram you can also bother us individually steph is on twitter at underscore steph watts jake is on twitter at jkh cunningham and michael's there at michael j leader leader jake cunningham harold mcshill and steph watts our music is by anthony ian hi listeners thanks for sticking with us through the credits here's a tip you should sit through the credits of james and the giant peach because there's a pretty cool post credit scene there it's not tony stark or nick fury recruiting the insects to form a stop motion animated version of the avengers no instead it's a pure seaside arcade machine version of an aspect of the story really worth checking out also here's a bonus bit of trivia you know that randy newman wrote the songs for the film but he originally wasn't supposed to that job went originally to Andy Partridge of the new wave post-punk pop band XTC. He really is one of the great songwriters of his generation with an eccentric British sensibility that I think would really have contributed to the film. Some of the demos I think have come out on some of his box sets over the years so you can go and listen to those and dream of what could have been. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.